people. The first thing I want you to do, Jeff, is to, to is to take a step back in time. The year is 1982, and you're in Madison, Wisconsin. And I think at this point, you may or may not have been at the Pile Center, and you were the president of the real estate club. Walk us through what's happening. Yeah, well, so interesting. So maybe even take a step behind that to let you know how I kind of ended up back in Madison. So. And this was really just kind of um, just a pure coincidence, but um, my family is from the Madison area. My dad went to, went to the UW, uh, but we moved to California when I was six years old. So I, I was raised out in Southern California in Orange County, uh, ended up uh, going to a state university in California, Cal State Fullerton for undergrad, uh, stayed at home and um, got interested in real estate while I was there. And they had a really good real estate professor at, at, at Cal State Fullerton, took all his classes, really liked it. But for a variety of reasons, I felt like I wanted to go to grad school. And I was really focused on, gee, should I try to go to UCLA or USC? Because, you know, big, big, you know, real estate networks in Southern California. And I went to talk to the professor at Fullerton. And I said, so what do you think, UCLA or USC? And he said, Wisconsin. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he said, he said, if you're going to go to grad school for real estate, there's only one place to go in the United States. And that's Wisconsin. He said, wow. you need to go study under Jim Grasscamp. Wow. And I was like, I was like, God, you're kidding. I, my, my dad is from there. I have three grandparents alive in Madison, loads of aunts, uncles, cousins, big families on both sides. And uh, and I just kind of fell in love with the idea right from the beginning that it would just be super cool to go back to sort of the roots and uh, reconnect with some of the family. And, um, you know, I so I researched the program and, and you know, obviously Grasscamp was was a legend. Um, yep. And so, you know, ended up, you know, right after undergrad and, you know, spring of 82, I uh, graduated from Fullerton, started in Madison in the fall of 82 and uh, made the mistake of letting Grass Camp pick my uh, classes for that first semester. And man, did he load me up. I, <laughs> I, was, I was way overloaded. I was way overloaded. It was, it was pretty insane that first semester. And I remember the couple months in, I remember calling my dad and saying, I don't think I could do this. The work, there's way too much work. And I don't even understand what Grass Camp's talking about half the time. He's just like, I can't even you know, I'm, I'm not even following along. Um, but, you know, as I got into it uh, and, and started, uh, you know, kind of working with the other students, which I think is, is something, is sort of a legacy of that era that's continued today. But, you know, we all kind of bandied together to, to uh, you know, be able to just get through the workload, uh, the massive reading lists and everything else that Grasscamp had us do. Um, and, you know, gradually kind of hit my stride and, 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 you know, kind of, kind of got comfortable with it. So, um, yeah, so I'm there in Madison. I'm loving it. Um, I mean, working is hard, harder than I've ever worked in my life. I mean, we, we, we studied every night until late and, um, you know, the days were just very, very full and, and pretty, and pretty intense. Um, but it led to a lot of really good bonding with, with the other folks in the program. And, um, 
made some really good friends who are still good friends today. Um, number of the guys I was in school with ended up migrating out to California. So uh, we've stayed close over the years. And, and uh, some of my closest friends today are people I met in Madison um, in 1982 and 83. So, um, you know, so I kind of got through that first semester. And because I had an undergraduate degree in business, I was able to get a waiver for a number of the classes. So I, I did the whole grad program, the, the MS program in a year and a half. So I, I graduated in December of 83 and um, spent a little time thinking about whether I wanted to maybe stay in the upper Midwest because I really liked it up there. But at the end of the day, just wanting to get back and, and still be near my family in Southern California, ended up, uh, you know, coming out to California for my first job. But, but UW was really central to all of that because my, you know, my first job out of school was through the Wisconsin Real Estate Alumni Association. Yeah, same here. That's how I got my first job. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I just, I literally, you know, coming from Wisconsin, it wasn't like there was a huge network in Southern California, but I um, just started going through the directory of guys that were in uh, Southern California and, um, there was a guy working for Heitman uh, in the LA office, a guy named Stu Ackerberg, uh, who's now in Minneapolis. You guys know Stuart. Uh, and uh, fortunately, they had hired a couple of UW grads up in Wisconsin, and Stuart was a Wisconsin grad as well. And Norman Perlmutter, who was chairman of Heitman at the time, really liked the Wisconsin students that he had hired previously. And they tried to bring a couple of folks out from Chicago who ended up not really sticking in Southern California and ended up wanting to move back. So here I was kind of sort of from California and, and you know, but, but with the Wisconsin training that they liked. And uh, so that ended up being, uh, being a great fit for me. And I, I started there literally within a month of graduating, like January of 84, as an investment analyst in their, uh, in their acquisition group. So I, Stu's actually one of my clients right now. I'm, I'm the listing broker for two of his buildings. Oh my God. Your partners and I, so that's, that's hilarious. I was just got to say hello for me. He and I have kept up quite a bit over the years, although I'll say it's been a couple of years now since I've talked to him, okay. but he's, he's one of the people that I most admire in this business and the way that he changed his focus and direction and, and what he's been doing up in Minneapolis is, right. is pretty incredible. Yes. Um, wonderful guy. Wonderful yep. guy. And I learned a ton from him. That's awesome. He was an Such early small, mentor for me. Such a small world. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 He was my, he was my first mentor. So, but uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think that, you know, the foundation at, at UW was, was absolutely awesome. And then, you know, getting that job at, at Heitman through the network was, was great. And, and really the Wisconsin program, I mean, at every step of my career, pretty much um, the Wisconsin alumni network and the program has sort of played into it in, in one level or another. Awesome. So before we dive into your career a little bit more, um, yeah. so Luke and I were previous members of the executive board for the real estate club and you as a former president, um, we were curious about what a real estate club meeting looked like back then. You know, oh, for yeah. us, it was, you know, we went to the pile center, um, sat or, or stood around some tables and drank some spotted cow and ate Ian's pizza and then listened to a guest speaker. But what did a real estate club meeting look like for you? Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty similar. I'd say, you know, we, um, 
we were trying to kind of ramp it up uh, when I got involved with it. And I was, I was like, I don't know, the treasurer or something for the semester before I, I was the president of the real estate club. We used to do our meetings primarily at, at the student union. Uh, same thing, beer and beer and pizza, basically. Uh, but we we really sort of tried to set our sights on some some pretty uh, you know well known real estate folks, and we were actually pretty lucky to get some to get some pretty good people to you know to, to come up. Uh, but yeah, it was, that was that was pretty much the program. You know, we I remember we had um, donut sales in the in the business school uh, to to raise money to to help fund uh, the meetings and defray the cost and that sort of thing and. Grass camp used to tease us about that. Um, they thought that was kind of hokey, but um, but anyway, it was it was it was it was it was great. It was great, but yeah, it doesn't sound like it's changed a whole lot. Except we we got we got away with a lot easier path because we didn't have to sell donuts in the uh, in Granger. Okay. But, but yeah, yeah, pretty cool though. Right, right, right. What's amazing to me is literally every every single Badger guest we've had on has always talked about just how powerful our real estate alumni association is. And also like what you mentioned, the collaboration going back to the grass camp days, the collaboration he required in class for, you know, whether it was an assignment or just, you know, learning together in general, which I think is really cool. Um, and just to hear kind of how you've developed some of those relationships over the years with Badgers just kind of inspires us or me in particular to keep some of those relationships as well. So I think that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So do you want me to kind of jump into sort of the career path from there or? I th you yeah, I think that's great. I think that was going to be my next question is kind of walk us through kind of, you know, your first job and then maybe you can take it from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I go to work for Heitman. Um, it's, uh, you know, early 1984 uh, in Los Angeles. Heitman was Chicago based as they as they still are. But back in those days, they had a very large Los Angeles office and, and two of the four managing principals of the firm were based in Los Angeles and two were based in, in Chicago in the Chicago headquarters. Um, so started out as an investment analyst, uh, working on acquisition deals, acquisition underwriting, um, did all the normal things you do as an acquisition, you know, analyst, you know, went out and tracked down rental comps and, you know, wrote up the investment committee packages and investment briefs and, uh, spent a lot of time running numbers. Heitman had sort of a proprietary, um, uh, cash flow uh, analysis program that, that that we ran back in the back in the day that um, they had sort of cut they had, it was sort of an off the shelf thing but then they had customized it quite a bit and um, and that was really in the very early stages of pension funds diversifying into real estate um, you know the ERISA laws had passed not that much prior to that and so uh, Heitman was kind of at the early uh, sort of on that cutting edge of getting into this sort of institutional investment management business, which really hadn't been much of an industry prior to the early 1980s. And uh, one of Heitman's big clients was AT&T's pension fund, which at the time I think was one of the largest pension funds in the United States. And so, you know, in those days we were buying regional mall shopping centers. Um, we were buying high-rise office buildings. So it was a pretty exciting time, you know, coming right out of, you know, Wisconsin. And here I am working on 
at the time, what I thought were huge deals, you know, $7,500 million transactions, which today are average size, but, but back then they were huge and it, and it was, and it was very, very exciting. Um, but also kind of grueling, you know, in its own way. I remember one of the first things I did, I mean, I was maybe there two or three weeks and, uh, I got shipped to the East coast to go sit in a conference room and literally read regional mall leases for about a week straight for about 11 hours a day, reading and abstracting leases. And we did that for like a week. There were like five of us, some from the asset management department, a couple of other analysts, you know, and there's 150 or 200 leases. I don't even remember how many and abstracting it all. And then coming back to California and modeling them, modeling them all. So phenomenal training because, you know, you learned a lot about, um, you know, if, if you can, if you can model a regional mall shopping center, particularly one that's been around for, for 30 years, uh, you can model just about anything because with, as you guys probably have learned with retail leases, there are so, there's so much complexity in terms of the way the expense reimbursements work and multiple cam pots and different denominators. And for some leases, these buildings are included and some leases those and trying to get that all right. I mean, it was, it was, it was kind of a kick in the head, but it was, but it was good training. Um, so then when you finally got to doing, you know, triple net industrial or, um, you know, multifamily, um, that modeling was, was by comparison, you know, pretty easy. So, you know, kind of a, I'd say a little bit of a typical path from there, you know, so just, you know, the first few years, really just a very junior underwriter analyst putting packages together and, and, uh, helping with the investment committee presentations, which was uh, a pretty interesting process um, uh, at Heitman back in those days. And eventually by maybe 88, 89, so maybe four or five years in, um, you know, one thing that was great about Heitman is they were really big on developing younger people. And um, they really gave us a fair amount of responsibility at a pretty young age. So I was really lucky in that regard to be able to start working on my own um, acquisition deals. I'd still help out in some of the larger deals that were run by the more senior guys, but some of the smaller stuff that we did for some of the smaller clients, um, you know, they would let me just sort of run with. And so sort of transitioned into an acquisition officer, you know, maybe around 1989 or so. Uh, but that didn't last very long because probably, you uh, probably before you guys were born in 1991 uh, or so, 1991, 91, um, there was a big real estate recession and real estate value crash, as you guys may know. And um, that really changed the world quite a bit. And, and I frankly thought that I was going to be out of a job. I thought it was just a matter of time before I'd get, before I was going to get let go because I was in an acquisition role and we weren't doing any acquisitions and clients were not putting money into real estate. And for the most part, the clients were extremely angry with the real estate investment management community in general, not just us, but everybody, because they all felt that we should have seen this coming. You know, there was this massive overbuilding that happened in the late eighties, you know, the deregulation of the SNLs, huge flow of capital into real estate. Well, two things, deregulation of the SNLs, tax law changes that made real estate investing much more attractive from a tax standpoint. And so there were all kinds of crazy tax-driven real estate deals done in the late 80s and, you know, a huge development boom. And um, so all these pension funds that had started diversifying into real estate, you know, they all thought we were, you know, crazy to not have seen this coming. And so basically capital really dried up 
for real estate for 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 a couple of for several years several years in a row, but fortunately, um, Heitman um, was able to land some uh, asset transfer business, basically institutional investors who were unhappy with their managers and hired us to take over existing portfolios that other people had assembled, troubled asset portfolios. And so they plucked me out of the acquisition role and put me into that. And that was a very interesting, uh, and I didn't realize it at the time, I kind of thought, oh, well, this is just a gap filler because I want to be a deal guy. You know, I'm going to, I want to stay in acquisitions, but this turned out to be one of the best growth experiences for me in my life because some of the stuff we took over, and I, so the biggest portfolio we took over was from Ameritech, which was one of the one of the baby bells in Chicago. Um, they had assembled quite a esoteric group of real estate assets with a bunch of obscure managers um, who all ended up getting fired. But we had all kinds of um, out of the box types of properties. I mean, there were just raw land development deals. There were historic renovation projects. Um, there were, um, uh, gosh, what was some of the crazy things? Yeah, they had they had gone into some joint venture with like Kim Bassinger on some land north of Atlanta in a little tiny town called Brazelton. And they were they had grandiose ideas about developing like you know like sound recording studios and movie sound stages and stuff and this was the middle of nowhere so at any rate you know working in that arena for a while was was a great learning experience because it introduced me to a whole bunch of different product types that we just had never invested in uh, that ended up being a pretty big business for us at at Heitman it started with Ameritech but we took on some pension fund portfolios we took on some life insurance company portfolios and grew that business pretty substantially so i basically did that from that early 90s recession until uh, 1997. So um, ended up staying in that part of the business for, for quite a while. Uh, but by 1997, um, I'd gotten married. I had two young children. I had a, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And my wife and I had made the decision that we wanted to move from Los Angeles down to uh, Orange County. Uh, down to coastal Orange County. So what happened is, again, the Wisconsin real estate uh, network comes in. There are very few firms in our business in, in Orange County in those days. I think Len Lease had an office um, and there was a, a company called um, PM Realty Advisors, which was part of Pacific Life Insurance Company. And they were looking for a head of acquisitions and they had been recruiting uh, a guy named Mike Hoffman, who's another Wisconsin alum, uh, who was up in San Francisco at the time. And uh, Mike wasn't interested in the job. He had launched, he had been with AMB. He had launched his own firm at, I believe he had launched his own firm at that point, but he recommended me for the job. I was like, well, I haven't done acquisitions for the last six years, <laughs> um, you know, but I'll come down and talk to you guys because, you know, like I said, there just weren't very many options. We really wanted to move down to particularly Laguna Beach and, and PMRA's office was in Newport. Um, so I went down, talked to them and, um, uh, it was very straight up with them that, you know, guys, I've been I've been out of the transaction industry for the last six years. I've been doing this sort of troubled asset management work. And they actually really liked that. They thought that that was a good background. Someone who had been working on a bunch of deals that failed, they thought that was a good background for someone to lead their acquisition groups. So I thought that was pretty, that was a pretty insightful uh, way to look at the way to look at the world. So sure enough, at 37 years old, they hired me to be their head of acquisitions. 
we made the move down from LA, got a house in in, uh, in Laguna Beach, and uh, started working there. And um, you know, we really uh, we we really had some success for a number of years, kind of ramping up that business. Um, PMRA was very small at the time, primarily focused on core. Did only a little bit of value add, mostly core and mostly separate account business. So we were kind of a core separate account shop uh, at that time. We had a, a, a lot of, uh, well, like I said, pretty good success growing that business, brought in a number of new separate accounts uh, through responding to the RFP process. And, um, uh, you know, running acquisitions was a, was a whole new sort of growth area for me. I, I had a couple of guys, you know, reporting to me who were 15 years older than I was. So that was, that was interesting, um, you know, sort of life company, you know, type guys that had been around for a long time who were in their fifties. And now this 37 year old kid comes in and, you know, is going to run acquisitions, but uh, worked out pretty well, worked out pretty well. We did a lot of industrial. That was our, that was our main focus. I didn't realize at the time um, what a good sector that was to, to be positioned in, but we were, we're heavily focused on industrial. We did, and then some multifamily, you know, a little bit of office and, and uh, the retail we did was just grocery anchored, which, you know, all good, stable, income generators. That was sort of our, that was sort of our approach and sort of our identity in the market was that we weren't necessarily going to be the highest flyer and the highest returns in an up market, but we were going to also be a much better performer in a down market. And so steady, stable, you know, reliable cash flow was sort of our, our pitch. I'll, I'll jump um, in quick but, before yeah. you uh, move on to your next rule. Um, so Going back to your time at Heitman, um, we previously had Tim Peer on. Um, yeah. He was also at Heitman, but more on the public REIT side yeah. of things. Yeah. And he talked about kind of the transformation of the REIT industry in the 90s after the, the 90s real estate recession. Um, how did that carry over to the like private equity side of real estate? Yeah. Well, I think that um, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily think of the mid-90s specifically as a transition point on the direct side of the business. But what I would say is that over the course of sort of 20 years or so, from that early 1980s start to uh, the recovery in the mid 90s and then into the early you know, aughts, the, um, the, the whole industry kind of matured. And I think the pension fund community and the chief investment officers and their investment teams really started to view real estate much like other asset classes where um, be, I think in the early stages, they expected us as the manager to be able to time the real estate market perfectly, right? They didn't believe they could time the stock market or the bond market, but they thought we should be able to time the real estate market, right? Because you have a, you you have guys, a crystal ball. You yeah, you guys ball. should have sold everything when values were peaking. And why didn't you do that? And, you know, and, and bought at the trough. And I think over that 20 year period, it, it kind of matured to the point where <clears throat> they looked at it and said, no, this is just another asset class. We can't time these markets. We're gonna decide based on a long-term asset allocation strategy, how much exposure we want to real estate and where we wanna play within the risk spectrum. Mm. Uh, and we're not gonna ask our real estate managers to time the market and basically um, gut their business of, of all their <laughs> revenue generating assets. Um, we're going we're gonna to make our decision about how much we want in core value add and opportunistic. Uh, we're going to manage 
we're going to, you know, monitor our managers and 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 um, and and watch their performance, and we're going to reward the good performers with more capital, and we're going to take capital away from the ones that that, that don't perform. And and I think that as time has gone by, um, you know, that's that that's that's been 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 the bigger shift where I think they just realize real estate is another asset class. It's going to have cycles. Um, it's going to go up and down. Um, but it, 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 it obviously has, has benefits, uh, in a diversified, you know, portfolio. And, um, uh, and I think as now as time fast forward to today, I think they're looking at real estate in a much broader sense. And I think where there's the bigger tie into the, to the, to the, to the public market is if you look at where at the at the market capitalization of the public market today, it's far more diverse than it is on the direct side of the business. Um, and so, I think the big transition that's happening now is that uh, that pension funds are looking at their portfolios, and instead of just saying we're just going to be in the four primary asset types, um, we're going to look at data centers and cell towers and manufactured housing and student housing and senior housing and self-storage and all those kinds of things. And so the playbook is expanding quite a bit. And, and you know, I think that firms like, like Invesco and Heitman, um, you know, are very much um, active in that, in, that, in that transition, broadening the, you know, the, the asset base uh, dramatically. Um, uh, and, and, I, and I think that's gonna continue for a while. And do you think because of that, there's going to be a dramatic increase in the overall capitalization of uh, real estate. I, I think you're going to continue classes. to see. Yeah, I think you're going to continue to see increases in allocations to, to real estate um, for a variety of reasons. But I think one of the biggest reasons is, um, you know, if you go back to the old days and you think about the old pension fund portfolio model, right? It was sixty percent equities and forty percent fixed income. And as time has gone by, those numbers have, have bounced around. But um, I think for most CIOs today, looking at um, their fixed income portfolios and seeing signs of potential inflation uh, down the road, you know, there's obviously been a, been a long-term trend of, of declining interest rates, and that has served the funds really well as, as they've gotten good appreciation in their bond portfolio. But if and when that reverses, um, you know their fixed income portfolio is going to return very, very going to going to have very poor returns. So, I think a lot of them are looking to other sources of income, uh, and and real estate is extremely attractive because it's a higher income yield, uh, and it tends it'll drive off of off of inflation. So um, you might have some cap rate expansion if inflation ramps up, but hopefully the underlying NOI is growing as well. Um, which helps offset that. And then you've got great debt that you can use as kind of a hedge against, um, you know, inflation and, and cap rate expansion. So I think you're going to continue to see increases in allocations to real estate um, from, from the, you know, domestic pension fund community. And, you know, there's just increasing interest from sovereign institutional investors to, to get into the U.S. real estate market as well. So I think there's going to be a lot of capital. I mean, there's already huge amounts of dry powder um, in closed-end fund vehicles that are that's waiting to get deployed. There's a ton of uninvested capital within on the direct side and the, in the separate account side of the business as well, um, where a lot of funds are under allocated. So 
Um, I, I just think there's going to be continued pressure on, on, on values. And I think that's going to keep cap rates low for a while. Um, even if we do start to see some inflation, um, because again, I think if, if we get some inflation, you should see some decent growth in NOI. Okay. And just a, one follow-up is earlier you talked about like in the early nineties, one of the, one of the reasons why, uh, we saw the real estate crash was because of different tax changes that uh, the government made. Now, how uh, there's today there's a lot of different talk about different tax changes with regards to real estate, maybe on a more localized sense with things like 1031. But how do you, how do you think that some of these tax changes that are being proposed are going to affect the real estate markets going forward? Yeah, well, um, it's a little bit tough for me to opine on that specifically because my whole 37 year career was working with tax exempt investors. Got so it. I haven't spent a huge amount of time focusing on, you know, how much the Different. tax laws drive real estate values. So obviously it's irrelevant for CalPERS and CalSTRS and, you know, the Australian superannuation funds, because they all get, you know, basically they're, they're all basically tax exempt in, in the United States for real estate. Um, I think that, um, I think that, you know, if the 1031 goes away, I mean, you know, I don't know, maybe that'll result in, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, fewer transactions, more transactions. I'm not really sure, sure. <laughs> uh, no, how, that, how that'll, how that'll affect it. I, I don't think it'll have a huge impact on values. Um, I think there's probably a segment uh, more probably in the middle market transactions right. where that'll be more significant, but for the kinds of investments we were making at Invesco, um, you know, 75 to 100 million and up, uh, I just don't think it's going to make a whole lot of difference. I don't think it's going to change things that dramatically. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's still just a ton of, um, I mean, the big, well, the, the tax exempt capital is huge. Uh, but obviously the, the individual investor capital is also another big source that's coming in. And, you know, one of the other big trends right now is for firms like Invesco and, and obviously Blackstone leads in this right now is is getting into the, the private or, you know, the retail capital market. So, you know, Blackstone has BREIT, um, you know, which is a which is a non-listed but publicly traded REIT that generates, I don't know, billions of dollars of, of, of new investor flow every year. Uh, and a lot of other companies are getting into that business. Invesco is launching an unlisted REIT um, it, it, probably in the next quarter. Um, you know, Starwood has one that's pretty active. There's a, there's a number of them out there now. And so I think for a lot of the firms that have been primarily focused on tax exempt institutional investors, um, that's, this is a natural uh, way to diversify their, their capital base. And, and that, I think you're going to see that, that, that broaden out. And, and obviously the unlisted REITs, you know, had a bad reputation for a while because the, the, the original version, you know, the fee load was um, shameful, frankly. Um, you know, the, the, there was a 10 to 15% load on those original vehicles and it was, you know, mom and pop investors and, and the returns were terrible and there was no transparency in how valuations were done. And so this, this version that's now run by professional institutional investment management companies is, is, is much, much better for the investors. The fees are much lower, much better transparency on, on valuations. And 
um, and, you know, better liquidity for exit and all that sort of thing. Do you think that transparency is a result of like technology or why do you think that transparency has increased over the years? Well, I think it's, I think it's transitioning from groups that were less, um, well, um, less, I would say, to be very candid, I mean, groups that were less professional and had a lower level of integrity than the kinds of firms that are getting into it now. I mean, companies like Invesco and Blackstone, these are very high quality companies with very sound leadership, uh, with people who actually care about their investors, uh, have a fiduciary mentality. And yes, they're in the business to grow their business and they're, and, and they're, and they're trying to, you know, um, make money, but um, they're very focused on achieving their investors' goals and, and you know, have, have a strong commitment and a strong fiduciary mindset. Um, and I don't think that was the case with, with a number of the sponsors in those original, you know, unlisted REIT vehicles. Um, you know, uh, so I, I, think it's, I think it's just, you know, um, companies that, that, that care about their reputation have a very long-term horizon right. and, and want to produce good returns. Well, that's good. It sounds like a win-win scenario for both the investors and the companies that are, you know, allocating the capital. So. I think it's I think it's great for for the for the mom and pop investors to be able to have access to, you know, that kind of professional investment management and um, just have that as an as another way to diversify their own portfolios and and not only be in, um, you know, publicly traded securities. So we've mentioned uh, Invesco a little bit here, but we kind of cut you off when you're transitioning into um, what your role is or was there. So maybe yeah. you want to get back on track and just finish out your, your thought with uh, your career progression there. Yeah. 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 So, so, um, so about five years into my time at, at PMRA um, the parent company, Pacific life insurance company um, was selling the second half of PIMCO. You guys probably know that Pacific life, spawned PIMCO as well, right? Pacific Investment Management Company. So they sold that off to Allianz in two tranches. Um, they were selling the second tranche uh, around 2002, um, 2001, 2002. And with that, they were really kind of getting out of the institutional investment management business. And so we were like a baby, you know, brother to PIMCO. We were a little two and a half billion dollar institutional investment manager for real estate. And it just didn't make a lot of sense for them to own us. So they decided to sell the business. And um, that's when I ended up transitioning to Invesco. And the way, the way this happened was while I was at PMRA, uh, we actually competed with Invesco for a number of separate accounts. Um, we lost to them quite a bit, um, but we also won a couple of times. And just through that process, I had gotten to know um, some of the senior management at Invesco, particularly David Ridley. And um, they had actually taken a look at buying PMRA. And to David's credit, he opted not to pursue the acquisition because he felt there was too much crossover and they were gonna have to lay off too many people. And that wasn't something he wanted to do. And so uh, they, they backed away. Pacific Life's going through this process, um, but I, for a variety of reasons, decided I didn't want to try to stay with PMRA through the sale process. And uh, so I actually reached out to David Ridley and I said, hey, do you guys have any interest in having an office in Orange County? And he said, well, I think you ought to come down to Dallas. We ought to talk about it. 
So went down to Dallas and um, they, they were receptive and they were interested for a couple of reasons. One is they had a lot of client capital that was in Southern California. They had a big separate account relationship with, with LA County. They also had a big relationship with Nevada PERS, which while not Southern California, definitely West, and a number of other clients in the West, like San Francisco City and County, Stanford Endowment, um, uh, BB&K, which is now known as Baylord. So they had quite a few clients in the West, and they were also acquiring quite a bit in the West. Uh, and it was just an important market to have, you know, boots on the ground. So, um, uh, oh, in the state of Hawaii, which was a client of mine at, at PMRA. Um, so we had some client crossover, um, and I think the timing was just sort of right for them to establish a regional office in Southern California. And um, so they were um, kind enough to let me open an office uh, there in the fall of 2002. Um, literally started out, you know, in an executive suite, hired a secretary, and uh, we we went from there. Um, and so when I joined them, where they really needed help, though, was not so much on the acquisition side. Uh, and their acquisition infrastructure was really all pretty much in Dallas. I think they had one acquisition person up in San Francisco. Um, but they really needed someone to work in portfolio management and help them manage the client relationships. Um, at the time, the, the principles of Invesco were kind of serving in that portfolio manager role. Um, uh, and, and they really needed someone that could really focus on it uh, full-time as opposed to doing that while they were also running the business. Um, so they brought me in really uh, as a portfolio manager um, and uh, launched the office in, in 02. We slowly built it out with additional asset management folks, acquisitions, acquisition underwriting. We ultimately ended up with, with some folks um, on the debt team there. Um, and I started working uh, as a portfolio manager on their separate account clients uh, that were in the West. And then over the course of my uh, 18 years there, um, you know, I've, I evolved to a, a point where I ended up running uh, portfolio management uh, nationally for all of the separate accounts, uh, which was a big, a big part of the business for, for Invesco. Uh, we had about 20 separate account clients when I left with give or take 15 billion or so in assets. Um, but I ended up really enjoying the portfolio management end of the business. It was a good fit for me um, because I managed to, well, in that role, I was able to stay involved in the acquisition end of the business, but not, even though I wasn't outsourcing, um, I was helping figure out where each acquisition fit within our client pool. Um, and so kind of still working in acquisitions on a real-time basis but also interacting with the asset managers um, on all of the assets that were in the portfolio. Uh, and then obviously very much a frontline job with the client. So, um, you know, in portfolio management, our primary job is to understand what it is they're trying to get from their real estate and then construct a portfolio that achieves um, that objective. So, you know, hits the returns that they're trying to get from their real estate within, within the risk uh, parameters that they've that they've set up for us, and um, uh, you know, very very interesting part of the business to be in. Um, uh, you know, because you're working directly with with the clients, um, 
And our clients invested across the risk spectrum. So we had some that were very conservative, only did core. Uh, we had some that only did high return. Uh, and they very much looked at real estate as an alpha generator. Uh, and then some, most of them did a little bit of both. Most of them would do 60, 70% in core and let us do 20, 30% in value add. That was, that was very, very typical. Um, so um, yeah, so a lot of fun and, um, and, and kind of a nice, it ended up being a very good fit for me because I had some acquisition history. I had some asset management history uh, and that was a, that was a nice marriage of skills and, 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 and experience to bring to the portfolio management end of the business. So did you sit on um, an investment committee too? Yep. Yep. Uh, so both at PMRA and at Invesco, I was on the investment committee. Uh, at Invesco, I also was on our investment strategy group. Uh, and I also served on the management committee for Invesco, which was um, basically the seven people that ran the North American business for, for Invesco. So this is super interesting because my head's spinning with all the roles, you know, you kind of took on. So what I'm yeah. curious about is, so you go from launching an office in, in 2002 to, you know, having to manage this portfolio um, with some of the uh, clients. And, and you said even within that portfolio management role, having to kind of tailor your objectives or their objectives to your actual portfolio. How does all that work? How do you, how do you track things? How do you stay organized when you're wearing, when you're putting on so many different hats? Yeah, well, it's a lot. And, um, and obviously we had to build a team, you know, to do it. So um, as, as, you know, as time went by, you know, we built out the portfolio management, you know, infrastructure. And so basically we'd, we'd have on the separate account side of the business, sort of 1 p.m. for sort of three clients. That was kind of about what you could realistically do and, and really keep track of it all. So, um, you know, we'd have, a, we'd have a senior portfolio manager, typically a portfolio analyst that would help. And, you know, basically, you know, you, you spend enough time with the clients and, and, you, and you really, you know, go through their parameters and, and develop the strategy. And, and um, you know, it, it's a very much an iterative process, you know, where we, we start out with the client, you know, if it's a brand new client and we've responded to an RFP and won the business, which we did that quite a bit, you know, you're starting with a blank slate. Uh, and then you got to be really, really careful with what you do in those first few investments, because with, with time-weighted returns, you know, linked by quarter, I mean, those early investments will have an outsized impact on your, on your overall returns over time. So, you know, our job was to really work closely with the clients to understand what they were trying to accomplish and then work really closely with our acquisition team to basically, you know, source the right assets for them. And um, it was very, you know, it's, it's a very um, cooperative process. There has to be a ton of communication, um, you know, at Invesco, and I'm sure it's true at other companies. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time together on these topics. Um, so, you know, we would have investment committee on Monday mornings. We have a all investment professional meeting um, uh, Monday afternoons. Uh, where we go through the entire pipeline of everything that the acquisition team is working on nationally. The portfolio managers would give feedback and updates on the clients in terms of what, what new you know, information there is, what they're looking for, what, what our hot buttons are. Um, 
Fridays, we would have an investment screening process where deals that we were getting close to sourcing or capturing in the in the acquisition process, uh, the investment team puts a puts a brief together essentially, and and all the PMs sit down with them together, and we go through it, and we talk through together the investment premise, where are the key risks, what are the key things that have to happen from an execution standpoint, you know, to, for 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 the investment premise to to, to be achieved. Um, so there's just there's just a ton of time spent um, in that process, and you know, as you're going through it, you're you're learning more about you know the acquisitions. You know, they first come in, and it's just sort of, hey, are you interested in you know an industrial in the Inland Empire? Well, yeah, that sounds good. Um, everybody wants that. Um, and then you know, as you as you spend more time, and as the acquisition person gets more into it, you know, you, you start learning more and more about the individual asset and and you know the risk reward parameters of each asset. And and we start to hone in on on which clients are are the right fit for it. So um, it is a lot to keep track of. Um, but once you've been doing it for a while, you know, and you you, you know, it's not it, you know, we just we just need a lot of communication, and and we need a number of people to to really be focused and paying attention. <laughs> That's the right. bottom line. Yeah. You know, getting aside from just sort of my background, but what were what would be some of the things I would recommend people you know, in school now coming out, start yeah. to think about um, in terms of their career. And, and I think there, there's a few key takeaways in, in my mind that I, that I would maybe leave you guys with. So, you know, one would be, while I didn't have any great grand plan for this, you know, as you guys can tell, I, I ended up with a, a very diverse uh, amount of work experience, you know, from acquisitions, asset management, ultimately portfolio management. Um, and I think that served me really, really well. So that would be one takeaway, which is try to diversify your experience, try to maybe not get sort of locked into just one aspect of the business. Um, uh, because my time in asset management made me a better acquisition person. Okay. And my time in acquisitions and asset management made me much better at portfolio management. If I if I'd gone right into portfolio management and just lived there for 30 years, I don't think I'd be as good at it as I ended up being because of that diversified experience that I had. So I'd say that's number one. Number two, I would say to really, um, as you're thinking about careers and where you want to position yourself, think a lot about your own DNA, <clears throat> and and try to find a job uh, or the part of the business that lines up with your personal DNA. And what I mean by that is, you know, the kind of person that's successful in acquisitions is different than the kind of person who works in the accounting group or the valuation industry or appraisal or, or, or even asset management, right? I mean, they're different personalities. Um, part of it is, you know, how extroverted are you? How introverted are you? How competitive are you versus wanting to work cooperatively with people? You know, just kind of what's your what's your wiring? Um, do you like detail or do you like big picture? You know, um, do you like sales? Right. I mean, we have people that go out and raise capital. They're they're terrific. They're salespeople. I mean, they can tell the story, develop the relationships. Happy to go and do dinners four or five nights a week. Some people just want to go home and you know just you know. Be, be at home. So, so, so think about kind of how you're wired and, and, and try to line up your career with, 
with sort of what fits your DNA and you'll, you'll be much happier. Um, I, I, my recollection from back in 82 was, you know, we were all enamored with being acquisition guys or developers. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those were the jobs we thought were cool and hip and sexy and made the big money. And we wanted a big, you know, big ego real estate guys. Um, but you're, what, what people will find out over time is that there's all these jobs are important in our industry and you can make a very nice living in a whole range of jobs. And you'll be a lot happier if you're in something that really fits you uh, in terms of your own personality and your own style. Uh, and then the last takeaway would be, I think the importance of culture in choosing where you go to work. Um, you know, really try to learn as much as you can about the culture of the organization and line yourself up at an organization, even it might even might not be the best necessarily the best career opportunity on its face, but if it's a cultural fit for you, you're, you're just going to be much, much happier. And um, I think that, uh, you know, happy people thrive in their, in their, in their working and their professional life. And, and it'll be easier to work longer and harder if you're in a place where, uh, you know, the cult, the culture is a fit for you, where you feel valued and uh, you're treated the way that you want to be treated and the way you want to see other people be treated and that sort of thing. So right. those would be my big words of wisdom from one of the tribal elders of the hey. Wisconsin program. I did not know you remember the tribal members, tribal <laughs> elders. Excuse well, me. I, I, I don't consider myself a true tribal elder because that, that group is, is quite renowned, but I think as time's gone by, I've sort of evolved into it. You know, I I, yeah. I got very involved with the with the the, uh, the 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 real estate alumni association, as you guys may know. I was on the board for about ten years and and uh, and enjoyed my time there too. So I kind of feel like I felt a little bit in the footstep of some of those guys, like 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 Curtis and 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 Jim Haft and and some of those guys, and you know, did did my stint as as president of the of the WREA. So. Um, just loved the whole thing. And, you know, it's, it's all been great. I, I really feel blessed to have been part of uh, that organization and, and, and part of such a great university and a great alumni network. It's, it's been, it's been great. Wow. We were going to, I think we were going to jump into our closing questions, but I think we should almost end it at that. That was a bang. I mean, I have, I have a few more minutes if you do, but otherwise, if you guys have enough and you're, and you're good to go, that's fine too. You just tell me what works for you. What do you think, Blake? Closing questions? Yeah. Rapid so fire? we normally ask um, every Badger we have on the same three questions and it's called the Badger buzz round. So I guess All we right. can fire those off really quick. And now it's time for the Badger buzz round. First question is, what's your favorite book? Non-real estate or just just a life book, whatever. Oh gosh, well, can I can it be a series? It can be a series. Oh, yeah. Yep. All right, all right. So my favorite, which I'm now rereading, which is something I wanted to do once I retired, is the books by Patrick O'Brien. Um, it's the Aubrey Matron series. There's like 21 books in the series. Wow. It's fabulous. These are some of the best books I've ever read. Um, it's, it's in the era of the Napoleonic Wars and it's the fighting sailing ships. And it's a, it's a series about a British naval officer and his, uh, his best friend, who's a, who's a ship surgeon, uh, by day, but is in fact a British naval intelligence officer. And, uh, I'll leave it at that, but, um, it's, it's, 
fabulous. Great, great stuff. All 21 are plastered right on my butt reading list. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, this is this is my third. This is gonna be my th I'm in my third round going through them. You know, wow. I discovered them about 20 years ago. And uh, I reread them about 10 years ago. And I said, you know, when I retire, I'm gonna I'm gonna go through those again. And you know, enough time has gone by that, you know. I, I still forget, you know, I'm still surprised by some of the events that occur, but. Well, they, um, they, they must be pretty gripping if you, if you're reading them for the third time. So that's good. They're great. Definitely they're have to great. check them out. Yeah. yeah you'll it looks love like them. they're published over a 35 year time period too. Wow. So pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Really good stuff. Um, the second question is who is your favorite professor um, uh, on campus? Uh, you mean when I was there? Yeah, when you were at, uh, yeah, during your time at, in the MS program. Yeah, it, you know, it would have to be grass camp for sure. I mean, we, we did have some other um, really good people when I was there. We had a guy named Mike Miles who was there kind of briefly, um, but he was also very, very good. But, you know, grass camp was, was incredibly, incredibly special human being and, uh, you know, brilliant, um, but a great sense of humor um, a lot of fun and, um, you know, worked our tail off, but, 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 but taught us something about, um, you know, developing a work ethic and an attention to detail that, you know, ser served us all very well. So. I think that's special. Yeah. Uh, and then the last question, totally off course, but we're going to ask it anyway. What was your favorite bar when you went to school at Madison? Oh, well, that was easy. So Thursday nights back in my era was the real estate, you know, sort of grad student night out. And uh, we would meet at a place called the Flamingo, Flamingo. Um, which was uh, on, a, on Thursday nights, usually about 10. Um, I don't know what it's called now, but it's the one that you go downstairs. It's right across from the brat is it is it is it the brat house now or is it state street brats or state street brats state street brats okay back then it was called the brat house literally right across state street and it it's downstairs to the bar and the bar is underground do, mm. do you know does that sound familiar it might be where city bar is today could could be i don't know the name of it now but back then it was called the flamingo and i remember that um this i do remember we could buy a pitcher of beer for two dollars and fifty cents and so you know, we would take turns buying pictures and um, we could hang out there for a couple hours and try to line up a date for the weekend and um, and and literally spend, you know, 250 because you could buy one picture and that was your contribution. And, uh, you know, we could hang out for a couple hours. But anyway, a lot of fun there. A lot of fun there over there. That's awesome. Yeah, it looks like it's it's the the current location is City Bar. Or the current, okay. Uh, Established cool. City Bar. Yeah. All right. All right. Is there a, is there a, is there a local hangout for the real estate crowd now in Madison? Um, Any place? I'd, I'd say after club meetings, um, sometimes there's a tab open at the KK. Oh yeah. Okay. Just because yeah. it's right across the street from um, where the meetings usually are. Yeah. 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 Well, and I do remember going to the KK. A lot of people liked it, but, um, but at least my my group, and there were maybe like ten or fifteen of us that would go to the Flamingo on on Thursday nights. That was our that was our go to spot. Well, so. I certainly think there's going to be more of you know group setting get-togethers, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic, especially with you know kind of the pent up 
demand for people to go to club meetings and meet other people and especially the you know younger crew or even you know some of the grad students i think that'll be uh we're going to get back into more of some of those group activities which will be pretty cool to see so yeah yeah well things are things are opening up and and uh you know i i think people are going to be starved for you know human interaction so right yeah i certainly am <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right well, uh, thank you so much, Jeff, for, for coming on. I, that was a really interesting conversation. I think I learned a lot. So, Well, my pleasure, guys. Like I said, I'm flattered you guys uh, were interested in talking to me and uh, wish you the best. And thanks for, uh, thanks for what you're doing. And, and I know this is in addition to your, your studies and everything else. So I uh, appreciate you guys, uh, you know, making that contribution and, uh, and, and, and giving back to the program that way. It's, it's awesome. Of course. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Enjoy your you're in time and retirement. Yeah, I, I will. I will. We're, we're enjoying it so far. It's only, <laughs> we're only a month in and I'm uh, so far I'm loving it. And I'm not, I'm not having any trouble keeping my days very, very full. So it's I, all I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Sounds all right. Good. Thanks a lot. Jeff. All right, guys. Thanks. Thank you.